Hi there and welcome to the Dolby Anglican Podcast. My name is David and I'm one of the ministers at Dolby Anglican Parish. We're a church that's all about knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. This week's sermon is entitled Following It Through and it's part of our Follow the Saviour series and it looks at Mark chapter 10 verses 32 to 45. We hope you enjoy the sermon. The Lord be with you and and also also with you. you. The Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark, chapter 10, beginning at the 32nd verse. Glory Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. They were on their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief of priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? he asked. They they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and that high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be, to be served but to serve, and to lay his life down as a ransom for many. Well, he called them the Thunder Boys. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were given that affectionate title, the Sons of Thunder, by Jesus himself. So far throughout Mark's Gospel, we've seen James and John leave their father, Zebedee, or Zebedee Dudar for short, (laughs) behind with their fishing boats. And they've travelled with Jesus on this incredible journey. They've fed 5,000 along with Jesus. They've been sent out to heal and cast out demons. And in Mark chapter 9, they even go up on the mountain of transfiguration, where Jesus is revealed in all his glory. So they've seen some incredible highs. But today, James and John are going to ask the cockiest question of all time. They sidle up to Jesus and they say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And what follows is probably the most audacious power play of all time. And today we're going to see how Jesus handles this. And think about our passions. James and John are the sons of thunder after all. They were extremely passionate people. And so, is it wrong to be passionate? Is it wrong for us to have our own passions? And is it wrong for us to follow our passions through?
Today we're going to look at a passion predicted, a passion misplaced, passions redirected, and we're going to look at the passion of Christ. Now my mom always says, uh, if God tells you something in the Bible once, it's important, but if he says it more than once, you'd better pay attention. This is the case with Mark 10:32, where Jesus predicts his coming death for the third time. He says in Mark 10, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief of priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Now, regardless of where you are in Israel, if you're going to Jerusalem, you're going up vertically. Jesus and his disciples are in Judea in the south, but they are heading vertically upwards towards Jerusalem. This is the path that they've been on for the last couple of chapters. Jesus is under no illusion of where he's going and what will happen to him there. Many prophets and freedom fighters, and even his own cousin, John the Baptist were martyred in Jerusalem. As a human, Jesus knows the opposition he's about to face. But as God, he also knows that he will die on the cross and rise. Now, commentator James Edwards uh, gives us a helpful comparison of Jesus' three passion predictions, which you can see on the screen. So he predicts his death the first time in uh, chapter 8, and there's about four prophecies about what he's going to do. Then he predicts it in chapter 9 um, with similar words, but there's only really two, two things that he says about himself. And then in chapter 10 is the third passion prediction. You'll see there's lots of threes in Mark's gospel. And in this passion prediction, we have probably the most detailed prediction of what will happen to Jesus. There are at least 11 things that Jesus says will happen to him in Jerusalem. Now, because these 11 things are so accurate, and because Jesus predicts his passion three times, some scholars, some skeptical scholars, have uh, said that this is too accurate. This is a fabrication made up by later Christians to make it look like Jesus knew what was coming. But putting the three predictions side by side, we can see that they're all different. They're all similar, but they're all different. And if Jesus were actually to repeat this so many times, it would lodge in the disciples' brains, thick as they were. What we also find in the Bible is that the human authors of the scriptures would have seen putting words in Jesus' mouth as blasphemy. There are many examples in the Bible where they say, well, this is what I'm saying as the author, and this is what Jesus said. This comes directly from God, and this comes from my heart. What's clear here is that Jesus knew that he was going to Jerusalem, and he knew he was going, and why. Jesus predicts all the things that will happen to him. Nonetheless, he's not a passive victim. He's actively offering up his life. Mark tells us that those who followed were afraid. There's this band, there's the 12 disciples, but there's also more disciples. And they're starting to realize that things are going to happen in Jerusalem. 
that are very, very serious. They sensed Jesus was on a collision course with the powers that be. But Jesus is determined to go there. Pilgrims would often go up to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices. And here it's Jesus who's offering himself. Friends, I hope you know that he does this for you. Even though this is happening thousands of years before your birth, this is your story. Like a soldier trudging into battle, Jesus is passionately marching on his way to the cross. And he tells his disciples at least three times what will happen there. And it's as he does this that his passion comes on a collision course with the misplaced passions of the Thunder Boys. James and John have heard him speak about his death and resurrection, but they're still missing the point. They think Jesus is going to Jerusalem to take it by force, to sit on a throne, to rule in glory, and they want in. So they say, teacher, do for us whatever we ask. Now, if someone asks you this question, run. It's like the question, uh, can you keep a secret? You know something weighty is going to happen. Or it's like, um, I'm asking for a friend, but it's a trick. And it says more about the asker than what they're trying to do. Wisely, Jesus doesn't take the bait. And he asks the Thunder Boys straight up what they want. And the request is as audacious as it should be offensive to us. They say, let us sit at your right hand and at your left in your glory. Jesus has told his mates that he's about to be betrayed, mocked and murdered. And all they can think about is their own status, their own privilege. Now, I can't prove this, but it seems as if uh, Zebedee, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, want to cut Peter out. They were considered the three. They were the three closest friends of Jesus. And it seems like this is particularly to cut Peter out. They know that Peter is in the inner sanctum. And they, James and John are like, oh, oh it's, who's going to be the next in charge? We need to think of a, um, an order of, of, of succession. And it, it's got to be us, doesn't it? Now, if I were Jesus, I'd have blown my stack I'm going to my death, and all you can think about is yourselves. Thankfully, Jesus isn't like me. And uh, so his, his response is as gentle as it is telling. And he says, To sit on my right hand or at my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Jesus brings the Thunder Boys back to earth, prophesying that his path to glory will be a path of suffering. The two people that he's talking about who will sit on his right and left in glory are actually criminals. One will be hurling insults at him and one will say, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And here, friends, we have a lot to learn. We can pray for comfort and we can pray to God for success. We can pray for something that will make us feel validated. 
But sometimes that's the worst thing for us. And instead of smacking us over the heads, God often answers these prayers by channeling our passions from the wrong place into the right place. Friend, I don't know what you're seeking in life. Perhaps it's respect. Perhaps it's uh, like James and John. You just want validation and don't want to be taken for granted anymore. The comfort of this passage is that Jesus sees you. And God hears your prayers. And he knows you want these things. The challenge of this passage, however, is that God wants to redirect your passions towards something better. And that's exactly what Jesus does. As he's questioned by the disciples, he asks them if they're ready to follow him into his passion. Are you ready to drink the cup and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Try saying that three times in succession. Um, And the disciples respond emphatically with a, yes, we can. And this, of course, is the most naive we can of all time. (laughs) Even if Jesus was going to Jerusalem to trigger an uprising, James and John weren't fighters, they were fishermen. They weren't leaders, they were followers. And when a mob of people comes to arrest Jesus on the night of his betrayal, what do James and John do? They cut and run. They can't even handle a drop of the wrath to come. Here Jesus is riffing off the suffering servant songs of Isaiah, written 670 years before his birth. You see, the people of Israel, James and John, they knew that God was sending a Messiah who was going to restore the kingdom of Israel and would make it glorious again and would unite God's people again. But for Isaiah, this Messiah figure is a suffering servant. He's not a domineering ruler. Isaiah 53 says, Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. Jesus tells James and John that the Messiah's path to glory will be paved with suffering. And they won't understand this until after his resurrection. This is why Jesus says, you will drink the cup I drink from and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. James and John will sip from the cup of sorrow of Jesus' death and they will go through a baptism of fire in the coming weeks. Jesus submits to the will of God the Father here. This doesn't mean that he's less than God, but it does mean that he willingly submits to God's will. There's nothing shameful about submitting to another person, about being obedient to them. And there's nothing shameful about being obedient to God. You see, in his human nature, Jesus can be tempted against following God's will. But he never sinned in this way. 
the Father will glorify the Son at the cross, and Jesus will drink the cup of wrath that you and I deserve. He will be baptized into death so that we might be saved. Again, I love how Jesus isn't mad, but gathers his disciples together for a team talk. James and John have tried to divide the group, and the other disciples are angry at them. And, and at this point, the whole discipleship thing, these, these friends who have been together for three years learning from Jesus, it can all implode. But Jesus gathers them together. And what saddens me about the other disciples' anger is they're not angry for Jesus' sake. They're angry for their own sake. They want the power too. They're annoyed with James and John for cutting their grass. Everyone is thinking about themselves. But as Jesus has done twice in Mark's gospel, here he calms another storm. Look at verse 42. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Jesus brings his friends together to unite them and shows them a better way. He redirects them, their passions away from themselves and towards God. In May this year, Kanishka Raphael was consecrated Archbishop of Sydney. He literally has his own seat in uh, St Andrew's Cathedral in Sydney uh, and is now one of the most influential leaders in our church. But in his sermon, Kanishka quite simply said, Though I have been given particular responsibilities, I have no higher dignity than child of God. We humans, in our sin nature, jostle for power and prestige because we're insecure and our passions are misplaced. But when we allow God to redirect our passions towards himself, we embrace his freedom. We don't need to be wor worried about being good enough, powerful enough, or where we sit in glory. When I direct my passions towards God, I realize I am a child of God. And that is good enough for me. What's remarkable about this passage is that as the disciples are bickering over power, Jesus contrasts their way of life to the rulers around them. He says the rulers of the Gentiles, that's the Romans, dominate and lord power and subject people. But he says, it is not so among you right now. It's present continuous. This is not a lofty ideal or an aspirational goal for the disciples. This is the way Jesus has been living among them. And this is how they are con to continue to live. Unfortunately, we can all identify examples of what happens when the church doesn't behave this way. There are people in our church who aren't allowed to get married in the first church they chose because the person in charge lauded their authority over them. Examples of child abuse in our churches all come back to situations where people in positions of power have weaponized it to their shame. Whenever Christians use power the way the world around us uses power, we hurt people. This is why we need to redirect our passions towards God 
and allow him to redeem them for us. This brings me to my final point and how Jesus uses his passion as a standard for all Christian living. Look at verse 45, where Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In his book, uh, Humilitas, uh, John Dixon tells the story. uh, Does anyone know who that is, by the way? Sir Edmund Hillary. Well done, Sir Edmund Hillary. Uh, And he tells the story of how uh, Sir Edmund, along with his uh, Sherpa guide, uh, Tenzing Norgay, uh, were the first to climb Mount Everest. But later in life, uh, Hillary was was climbing in the Himalayas, and a number of climbers noticed it was Sir Edmund Hillary. And so they gathered around for a photo. And one of the climbers had an ice pick. And so they said, well, to make the, the, the photo look more authentic, they handed Sir Edmund an ice pick. And so he's holding it, ready to take the photo. And all of a sudden, another climber comes in from another direction and says, oh, wait, sir, 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 excuse me. You're holding your ice pick wrong. He didn't realize that it was Sir Edmund Hillary, the guy who just climbed Mount Everest. And so Sir Edmund says, thank you very much. And he allows this audacious tourist to redirect the ice pick so that he's holding it right. And then they take the photo. Now, friends, here we see the greatness of Sir Edmund Hillary in the fact that he had the humility to let this audacious thunderboy come on the scene and tell him how to hold an ice pick. John Dixon writes this, It doesn't matter how experienced that other climber was, his greatness was diminished by his intrusive presumption. We are repelled by pride. Edmund Hillary's greatness, however, is somehow enhanced by his humility. And the same goes for Jesus, friends. Jesus, the one who made the world, came into the world not to be served, but to serve and sacrifice his life for us. The word Jesus uses in reference to himself is sacrifice and ransom. As a kidnapper holds a person captive until a ransom is paid, so Jesus' death pays the price to set us free from our sins. In his commentary on Mark, James Edwards writes, The death of the Son of Man on behalf of the many is a sacrifice of obedience to God's will, a full expression of his love and a full satisfaction of God's justice. Jesus pays the price for the blight our sins are on the glory of God. Jesus spent his life serving others, but in his death, he will perform an act of service he could never give by living. I'll say that again. Jesus spent his whole life serving others, but in his death, he will perform an act of service he could never give by living. Jesus dies in our place, pays our debt, and makes relationship with God the one thing we truly need, a reality. Jesus doesn't do this to burden our lives and make sure that we're racked with guilt for all eternity, because that's not the end of the story. 
Jesus liberates us as he conquers death and sin by rising back to life. A life lived for Jesus doesn't inhibit us. It frees us from ourselves and the things that bind us. True greatness is found in Jesus. Friends, at the back of our church, you'll find there are a number of stones. And one of the stones is from the Isle of Patmos. And that's the island where John was exiled at the end of his life, where he wrote the book of Revelation. John did become great, but he became great through service. In Toowoomba, if you go down the road, there's St. James Church, named after James the son of Zebedee. And he's called James the Great because he died in Jerusalem serving the church there. The Thunder Boys discovered greatness through service and through humbling themselves and laying their lives down for Jesus. They let God redirect their passions. And so, friends, let's not let our lives' passions derail our passion for Jesus. Let's come before Jesus, confess our pride and arrogance, and let him take our passions and redeem them. Jesus offers a life more wonderful and fulfilling than we often believe is possible. As Jesus approaches Jerusalem to die for us, this is the passion he is willing to follow through for for us. He died for us. Let's live for him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.